0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. I am the one and only full-time permanent host, Eric Trexler, but today I am joined by a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, how are you doing?
1: Uh, I got to be honest, I'm not doing great today. Uh, We talked about this before we started recording. Yeah. I got boosted yesterday, and so uh, I'm alternating between feeling very low energy, very sluggish, And, um, like vaguely manic, like way too much energy and feel like vaguely dissociated. Um, so yeah, currently feeling the latter right now, which of the two is the preferable condition, but yeah, pretty rough day so far, but I'm sure, uh, sure it's better than COVID and, uh, I, I assume I'll be feeling better tomorrow.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't really appreciate the true power of my immune system until I got the uh, the second and, and the, th- the third booster dose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my immune system, uh, definitely a responder. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was this like 24 hours feverish, uh, yeah. generally kind of fluish and then good as new. Sweet. All right. So uh, before we start here, welcome back to the show. As always, we appreciate you being here. As a viewer or listener, if you want to support the show, if you feel so inclined, there are several ways to do it. You could like it, you could rate it, you could subscribe to it. That's always helpful uh, with whatever platform you use. Uh, You could go to BulkSupplements.com and use the code SBSPOD for a 5% discount on your supplement orders. You could subscribe to the Mass Research Review, which is linked in the show notes, uh, and of course, you could subscribe to Macro Factor, our diet app, which does offer a free trial. So if you're not sure if it's going to be right for you, you can try it out at no cost, uh, no risk associated with it whatsoever. So yeah, give it a shot if you feel so inclined. Uh, and that is the, the macro factor of all those uh, possibilities is the one that's most related to today's show, because we're going to talk a lot about uh, New Year's resolutions, goal setting, specifically as it pertains to nutrition and body composition related topics. Uh, but before we get to all that road to the stage, how is it going?
1: Uh, it's going good. There are no updates, which, uh, which is a good thing as I've discussed on the podcast. Uh, I think like three or four times before I am intentionally at maintenance through the holiday season from approximately Thanksgiving to new year's. Um, so yeah, More than halfway, more than half of the way through that time period, things are still going pretty smoothly, just chilling in the, in the mid two thirties. Um, so yeah, no, no updates, which is the best update. Good stuff. How is the road to Athens?
0: The road to Athens is, um, there's some good news, you know, uh, nothing too crazy, but I am back in the saddle, as I mentioned on previous shows. I was dealing with a minor popliteus issue, but I decided to try to have some patience and shut things down uh, and just let it recover. So I did go for my first run the other day. Uh, a couple of days ago, it was about three miles. Um, nothing, you know, it was on a paved surface. So there was no crazy mm-hmm. route systems to navigate. And so far, I'm feeling good. Um, and, and it is funny, I during that time period, you know, I was super busy with writing stuff mm-hmm. and so I just wasn't exercising much and then I got a couple, you know, I got a good lift in, I got a good run in and my sleep quality, it's like night and day. Mm-hmm. Like even if I didn't care at all about health or fitness or my physique, just for the sleep benefits, exercise is so good. Uh, but yeah, back on the road to Athens, I'm feeling pretty upbeat about it. Good. Uh, how about feats of strength? What do we got this week?
1: Yeah, so um, the World Weightlifting Championships wrapped up recently. Uh, there were a few world records set, but obviously, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know the toast of the town is Lasha Talakadze of Georgia. Uh, I think indisputably the greatest super heavyweight weightlifter of all time, and I think you could you I think you could put him in the conversation of just the greatest weightlifter of all time. He absolutely showed out at the World Championships, uh, snatched 225, clean and jerk 267, totaled 492. Uh, those are all in kilos. Uh, those were all world records, um, which is just kind of what you expect of him every time he steps on the platform now. Um, and he surpassed um, he surpassed a, a pretty big milestone at this event as well. I think he'd previously clean and jerk two sixty six before, which uh, matched Taryn Yanko's uh, clean and jerk back from 1988, I believe. Um, and so like that had just kind of been sitting on, on the record books as what appeared to be an untouchable record since 1988. Uh, Chimurkin couldn't do it. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Razazade couldn't do it. I think uh, Chimurkin got, uh, 262 and a half. Razazadeh got, uh, 263. And, um, yeah. And, uh, so Lasha, early, early in his career, like he's always been an exceptional snatcher, but his clean and jerk has kind of come on later in his career. And so, uh, yeah, he, he finally, uh, slayed the dragon, took down 267 in competition. He's done 270 in training. Um, But so that was that was a very cool milestone that he surpassed. And just to put his four ninety two total in perspective, that is so far ahead of the rest of the world right now. It's ridiculous. Um, He finished thirty five kilos ahead of the second place finisher in in his weight class at Worlds, which like you sometimes see that in powerlifting, which is notably not an Olympic sport. Uh, IPF is certainly more competitive now than, than it has been previously. Um, but you know, you, it's still not uncommon to see a single lifter run away with a weight class and maybe, maybe like half the classes be quite competitive. Generally with weightlifting, uh, the, the metal competition is, is pretty close, pretty heated. So for, for someone to finish 35 kilos ahead of the rest of the field is ridiculous. And he's also opened up, uh, in the context of weightlifting, an enormous amount of space between himself and everyone else who has ever done it. So uh, I mentioned Taryn Yanko before, whose 266 clean and jerk, was the best ever in competition. Um, at that same meet, he totaled 475. And that, that had been the best total ever done in competition until Lasha broke that in 2017, I believe. And so he's taken his own total from 477 to 492 in four years. And so now, now that's uh, what 17 kilos ahead of the best that Taren Yanko ever did. And Taren Yanko, uh, you know, was previously the best super heavy ever. Um, so yeah, just, just truly historic stuff. And we are still on the watch for a. 500 pound snatch that would be uh, 227, 227 and a half, uh, and a 600 pound clean and jerk, which I think would be 272 and a half. Um, which I mean, based on how he's looking, and just based on the rate of progress he's still making, which is the crazy part, because like I said, he did uh, he did 477 four years ago. and Now he's at 492. I really think that, uh, and he's 28, which would be slightly old for like a middleweight or lightweight, like kind of the prime of their career, but you should start expecting maybe, um, maybe some degree of stagnation. Generally super heavies keep progressing a little bit longer. Um, like I said, I'm pretty sure he's currently 28. So I, I really think we're going to see that, that mythical 500 kilo total at some point in the next two years. Um, and yeah, I mean, as, as a fan of the sport and as a fan of our big Georgian boy, I, I will be so stoked to see that. Um, but yeah, just incredible performance from him at the world championships.
0: Yeah. And we were watching videos of his lifts yeah. and it does look as if there's not actually a load that he can't clean. Yeah. You know, like with his clean and press, it does give the illusion clean, clean that
1: clean and he, jerk. It,
0: clean and jerk i I apologize i'm gonna get a lot of hate mail for that
1: yeah we we were gonna get some angry emails from (laughs) all eight of the weightlifters who listen to this podcast
0: yeah but um yeah when you watch him clean and jerk Mm -hmm. it just doesn't look like there's any weight that can really slow down or influence his clean oh yeah it's just so strong um all right so now moving on, we've got a really lengthy segment here. It's a, a research review, I suppose. Um, but it's a really comprehensive segment about New Year's resolutions and goal setting. And you might be listening and say, well, I don't really have a New Year's resolution this year, so not interested. But I would encourage people to uh, to give it a shot here because it's a broader uh evidence-based perspective related to effective goal set, goal setting and behavior change. And so even if you don't have a New Year's resolution, you will probably at some point have a goal or a health related behavior that you wish to change. Or you might coach people or train people who have goals and uh, aspirations related to behavior change. So this is one area of research where you know greg we kind of are in a little bubble of evidence based fitness and you don't see a lot of people venturing into this topic with a really evidence driven approach you know like it's it's kind of a a bit ironic but i think in our little corner of fitness people with the physiology go so heavy on like if you don't have six citations i don't want to hear what you're saying yeah but then when it comes to like motivation and goal setting and behavior change that it's like there's just no value for it
1: yeah they they, i mean i was gonna say they i know i've been guilty of this when you start talking about goal settings just like i learned about uh smart goals like the acronym smart and undergrad when i was
0: 19 Um, yeah
1: And, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that seemed pretty legit. So let's, let's just roll with that and, uh, get through it as quickly as possible so we can (laughs) talk about physiology.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, and so, um, what I wanted to do is actually dig into some of this research and come out with some, uh, really practical applicable tips to set very good goals that can facilitate lasting behavior change Mm -hmm. and lasting habit formation when applicable. Uh, so the first thing I mentioned, uh, in our previous our, our most recent podcast episode was I kind of mocked the uh the the genre of post that is common in late December in fitness, which is like, listen, if you don't care enough to have started yesterday, don't even try. Like you're not serious <laughs> enough. You don't yeah. have the motivation, you're doomed. Yeah. If you really cared, you'd start now or yesterday. Um, and one of the things that the snarky part of me that I, I try to suppress, but often fail. Was curious about is do we have a similar level of uh, completely phony urgency in the peer reviewed literature? And I did find a paper that I thought was hilarious. It was in the uh, the BMJ British Medical Journal. They do like a Christmas issue where they they kind of publish like really silly, facetious articles. Yeah,
1: they they just let it hang loose a little bit.
0: Yeah, and so I found one and. I, at the risk of being completely trolled, I probably should have actually replicated some of their searches to see if these numbers are real, but it wouldn't be funny if they were just making up numbers. I I actually believe that they carried out the methods that they, uh, that they claim to have carried out, Mm -hmm. but they were kind of poking fun at the same thing in peer reviewed literature, which is this like completely phony fraudulent urgency. That's not actually based on anything. Uh, and based on their uh, based on their paper, the number of uh, titles in the peer reviewed research saying that the time to act is now uh, has gone up exponentially since 2009. Over the last uh, like 10 years or so, it has just absolutely skyrocketed. So,
1: well, I, I independent of their search where they're actually like pulling in papers and whatnot. I just ran a PubMed search on the term "the time to act is now." And I mean that looks like a exponential <laughs> growth curve <laughs> yeah, for for the for the YouTube viewers, I'm going to put my computer in front of the camera real quick to to let to let you see this. oh
0: boy, it is a very, very large, very steep increase, <laughs> yeah, you're good, <laughs> so yeah, basically, people have caught on to this literary device of just saying like instead of just saying this is important, I'm going to say that you should have acted yesterday um Now, what I wanted to do was look at the actual research uh, and say, is that true? Like, the people who are setting these New Year's resolutions and, you know, uh, waiting for the new year, are they really setting themselves up for failure? What is the success rate for these resolutions? And uh, as an extension of that, what can we do to make resolutions better? Maybe it is start three days earlier, but my hypothesis is that probably wasn't the trick.
1: Well, I mean, I I gotta say like a lot of uh, like a lot of New Year's resolutions are either related to like health and fitness or like finances and I mean just purely based on the types of resolutions being set because a lot of people do set those types of resolutions. I think it does kind of make sense to wait until New Year's because like, (laughs) you know, if, if you're trying to lose weight you're you're going to be going to holiday parties, probably, assuming you have family and friends. Um, and like, there's going to be good stuff to eat there. And so, you know, is, is when you're first starting out a new goal, is that when you want to invest a lot of willpower into like, you know, s- sticking to a goal that, that you haven't really had a chance to turn into a habit yet? And same thing with like financial based goals, like, you know, you're buying presents for people. You're probably traveling. Like, yeah, after New Year's, that that seems like a good time to to lock that stuff down. So, just purely based on the types of goals people set, I think, uh, regardless of motivation, there there are practical reasons to wait until the New Year.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. And, and the behavior change literature, the goal setting and goal attainment literature, would reinforce your your intuition. Like, fuck yeah. You if you especially if you have a poorly designed goal mm-hmm. with, with really insufficient architecture behind it. Uh, yeah, if you have a poorly designed goal, uh, which we'll talk about the characteristics of a good design, a uh, well-designed goal later, but a poorly designed goal met with initial failures, uh, that's an awful recipe for success. And that's mm-hmm. why I think a lot of people, um, you know, yeah, a lot of people do wait. Uh, but you also uh, suspected that You know, most New Year's resolutions do tend to be something fitness related if and also some finance involved there. And that is definitely uh, supported by the literature. So there was a study by Oscarson and colleagues uh, just a year or two ago, and they they looked at this big group of people with uh, New Year's resolutions and the topics by popularity. The number one uh, topic by far for New Year's resolutions was physical health. Number two was weight loss. Those alone account for over half within their sample, uh, which had hundreds of people. Uh, something related to eating is the next with with 13%. Uh, so when you look at the first like five or six categories, uh, most of them are fitness or health related. Uh, and then finance, personal finance, it was about 2% of the sample as well. So uh, the, the research does indicate that a lot of people set New Year's resolutions and they do often tend to skew toward fitness related topics, which is actually great because when you, you know, I was a little bit worried when When I own
1: a fitness company and you're planning like, when am I going to run a sale on a product? No. So you're saying for like most people.
0: So it's good for us. I'm saying (laughs) my genuine thing I was trying to say was When you are looking into behavior research, one Mm -hmm. of the things you have to be concerned about is generalizability. Yeah. So, okay, you had them in this experimental task, and you made these inferences about behavior change, but can I actually translate that to working out, to dietary adherence? Mm -hmm. One of the really nice things is that when people look at goal-related research, they say, oh, let's find New Year's resolution people. And when they look for those people, they're all doing fitness stuff. Mm -hmm. So in terms of generalizability, we're actually really lucky in this field because they are studying the exact resolutions that we want to be making inferences about. So uh, that is what I was getting at. But like I said, a lot of people make New Year's resolutions. There's a 2002 study uh, randomly called a bunch of folks at the very end of November and of the 434 respondents to their phone survey, 41% indicated uh, that they that they did have a New Year's resolution in mind that would be starting within the next week or two. Um, but anyway, one of the things I wanted to look at initially was just this concept that New Year's resolutions just don't work because clearly it's not important enough for you to start now is that actually supported by evidence? The answer is, in my opinion, no. I mean, that, uh, that particular perspective isn't really specific enough to truly disprove. Um, but when you look at the rates of success in studies on new year's resolutions, they actually don't seem that bad, at least from my perspective. So there's a study in 2002, they found that six months into the year, uh, of the resolutioners that they kept in contact with reported that they were still successful with their resolution at the time of contact. So basically, are you doing the stuff you wanted to do right now six months into the new year? Uh, And 46% of them uh, reported that they maintained uh, continuous success. So not just that they were still doing it now, but they had been doing it continuously for the preceding six months. So about half of people said, yeah,'m I'm, I'm doing pretty good. and of course that is self-reported, but I think it's nice uh, like yourself uh, the way you view your success, matters and is important in the Mm -hmm. context of behavior change and goal attainment. So these people in their own mind were still being successful, you know, six months into it. There was also that study by Oscarson that I mentioned, uh, where the self-reported success rates after 12 months were around 55%. That ain't Uh, bad. That's pretty good. So what, you know, you could, nitpick about what you consider to be true success and whether or not their objective success matches their subjective experience. But without question, about half of these people, six, 12 months into it, feel like, yeah, I I am doing some nice things to to support my success in this endeavor. Uh, So the idea that these uh, resolutions are completely doomed to fail doesn't seem to be supported by the literature and like i said there it's self reported so that's a caveat another caveat is that with surveys there is some bias that gets introduced due to lack of follow up so those percentages might be skewed a little bit because you know the people who stop answering the calls from the researchers you you could anticipate that a large percentage of them are not eager to have that phone call because they feel like they have failed to some extent in their uh, pursuit of that goal. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't uh, stake my reputation on these numbers as being truly robust and generalizable, but they do give the indication that there are plenty of people out here who six and 12 months down the line do believe that they're still doing a pretty nice job sticking with these resolutions. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't, I mean, I want to be as objective as possible and stick to the evidence. And there is a tiny bit of merit to that argument that it's bad to wait and you should have started now. Um, So when we talk about a New Year's resolution, we're talking about a goal that embraces something called a temporal landmark. And a temporal landmark is basically just a distinct event that stands out relative to our kind of day-to-day life. Um, And what it does is it kind of marks a some kind of marker on our calendar that distinguishes after from before. So a a very basic temporal landmark is just on Monday, I'm going to tighten things up, you know, to the start of a new week, start of a new month. And then, of course, start of a new year is a really common thing. Uh, in terms of temporal landmarks for goal setting. And so these kind of segment our life into these discrete accounting periods where we could say, oh, 2020, not good. 2021, very good. You know, it helps us kind of distinguish dates into these little bins where we can reflect on our progress, reflect on our success. They also create a separation. When we talk about a temporal landmark in the future, we have a subconscious tendency uh and research has kind of uh verified this to separate out our future self from our present self mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons that these temporal landmarks uh, are so appealing for goal setting purposes is because we can kind of trick ourselves into believing like current me yeah not doing great but future me future me is a stand up guy like he's reliable He's resilient. He's got his head on his shoulders. I know he's going to fix this. He's going to turn it around. So it, it creates something that is, uh, researchers call the fresh start effect. So there's this renewed enthusiasm and this renewed self-efficacy that future you definitely has this handled. Uh, so it kind of feeds into that, that common phrase, new year, new you. Uh, research would indicate that's actually kind of a, a literal thing that happens in our head when we have these temporal landmarks and that can be a really nice thing. So the fresh start effect is something that we can leverage in proper goal setting and successful goal attainment. But there is a drawback that I think gives just the slightest bit of credibility to that idea that putting off the start date to later could have drawbacks. And so one of the things that can, one of the the drawbacks is that, we can anticipate this temporal landmark uh and there's a study by ku et al that that looked into this but we anticipate this future landmark and we separate future self from current self uh and while that can increase self efficacy and we can say yeah future me definitely has this covered it can also lead to this kind of optimistic belief that like the things i'm doing now are truly not my problem yeah. <laughs> like future me is going to have to sort through this that's up to them I'm sure they can handle it but what we can see is that there can be a slight reduction in motivation to persist right now or or to do things that feed into that goal right now Mm -hmm. because you're like whatever dude future me is going to take care of it now that is the kind of evidence-based slight bit of credibility that that leads into that perspective but As you alluded to previously, I think the practical circumstances kind of outweigh this potential drawback. I think when you weigh the pros and cons of starting December 24th, it probably does make sense in totality, in my opinion, to wait uh, or at least not to force the issue. Yeah, because the last thing you want to do is start out with some big failures and some big, uh, you know, glaring instances in which you really fell short of what you're intending to do with your goals. So, um, there, we do want to be mindful of this idea of kind of shifting responsibility to a future self. We don't want to be sabotaging our future self because we are letting go of that responsibility. But for practical reasons, uh, I, I do think that sometimes it makes sense to leverage temporal landmarks and to capitalize on the renewed enthusiasm and to capitalize on that fresh start effect. However, It is extremely clear looking at the research, uh, simply having that fresh start effect, just having a temporal landmark is not independently sufficient to spur lasting behavior change. You know, if it really were that simple, then the success rates for New Year's resolutions would be 80% and above. You know, we Mm -hmm. clearly need to do more to support a successful goal or a successful New Year's resolution. We can't just trust uh, this idea that future me is just going to take care of it without any resources or planning. So one of the questions that comes up, you mentioned this previously, should we set a smart goal? That's usually where people start this conversation. Um, And I think the first question with a smart goal is what is it? And the answer is not as straightforward as a lot of people think. Uh, If you've, I mean, I remember
1: even. We've talked about this on the podcast before, right? We have. It was like a business management thing.
0: Yeah. So smart goals were created by our corporate overlords to extract value from us. That is explicitly what they are for. Um, and, and so like you might look through the ac- acronym and be like, why would relevant be part of it? Uh, or or, or a- another, um, another one is why would achievable be part of it? Like, shouldn't that be fairly intuitive? Um, and, and so achievable, I believe at the first use was actually just assignable. Mm-hmm. So it was for like managers to say, like, OK, can this actually be assigned to someone on my team that I manage? Yeah. And relevant, I be- I'm i not certain about this, but I believe its first use might have actually been resourced. Mm-hmm. Like, are you providing the resources to your team to make this happen? But anyway, if you've ever looked at the smart acronyms floating around in the fitness space and been like, man, that seems forced.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the the one that I've seen most often in the fitness space, the A and the R are attainable and realistic yeah it's like brother that's the same thing <laughs> right like so someone's done something to this acronym kind of trying to squeeze that square peg into a round hole
0: yeah so if it feels forced it absolutely is it, it's adapted from management stuff uh and kind of been repurposed mm-hmm. in in the context of health behavior it's not to say that there's nothing beneficial that can be drawn from some of these concepts but uh, there was a study the one by Oscarson that i mentioned which actually seemed to hint at the idea that smart goals weren't particularly conducive to sustained health behavior success mm-hmm. when it comes to goals um, you, you could make a very uh, defensible interpretation of that study to, suge- to suggest that adding a smart goal to the mix, uh, explicitly using that criteria for goal setting, actually was a little bit more counterproductive than productive. Uh, and it's very possible that that's because smart goals, uh, they seem to focus in many cases a lot more on... Uh, outcome rather than, than process. Mm -hmm. And they seem to be more discrete rather than continuous in nature. Uh, so I, I think that smart goals, uh, just leaning on that acronym is not going to get it done. Yeah. So looking through the evidence, um, there are quite a few things we can do to support our success. And the first thing that I came across, um, that, that I think is a really solid strategy is establishing a goal hierarchy, Okay, so it's not just setting a single smart goal and saying, yes, that's perfect.
1: Maybe even a pyramid, if you will.
0: Uh, The lawyers say we can't use that term. Uh, I'm sick of getting letters from Eric Helms. (laughs) Uh, His threats are empty, but still. Uh, But establishing a goal hierarchy. What we're talking about here is having superordinate goals, intermediate goals and subordinate goals that all kind of work together. So the subordinate goals support the intermediate goals, which all support the superordinate goal. So the superordinate goal is at the top of the hierarchy. And it is honestly the type of goal that people would tell you not to set because it is so vague. So like a superordinate goal might be, I want to improve my physical health or Mm -hmm. improve my health overall. And so a lot of times the conventional wisdom would be like, Dude, that's so vague as to be useless as a goal. But what it does is, you know, these superordinate goals are more like values. You know, they are identity based and they form a really nice um, foundation. They kind of anchor us and and they provide the why to why we're pursuing a goal. So uh, if you have a bunch of these hyper specific, really uh, tiny goals And there's no organizing structure about why they matter collectively. When we start to lose a little bit of motivation or lose a little bit of self-efficacy, we don't have that foundation to lean on to remind us why we ought to be sticking with these things. Uh, Intermediate goals. Are a little bit lower on the hierarchy. They're a little bit less abstract, more specific, and they are things that provide general directions that lean into this, the superordinate goal. So if your superordinate goal is being healthy, which is an example by uh, that was used in a paper by Hockley and colleagues, which I'll, I'll certainly uh, link in the show notes. If the superordinate goal is to be healthy, you might have intermediate goals like be in good physical shape, get enough sleep, avoid stress, eat a healthy diet. These are a little bit less vague uh, and they give us clear routes to accomplish the superordinate goal. And then the subordinate goals are at the lowest level of the hierarchy, but it, it doesn't mean they're the least important. In fact, these are the goals that we really interact with on a day to day basis and really form the foundation of the actual implementation of this behavior change. So these are the things where something similar to a smart goal would actually make sense. You want to give yourself uh, an idea of exactly what you're going to do and exactly how and when you're going to do it in order to achieve those intermediate goals. So if your intermediate goal is to exercise more, a subordinate goal might be uh, a specific plan to do 45 minutes of resistance training before work, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at the gym that is near your office, Mm -hmm. right? So now we're getting into more of the conventional concept of what a good goal looks like. Um, So normally the advice with goal setting is to keep your goal small and manageable and restricted to a, a really specific action. And that's partially good advice. It's great advice for a subordinate goal. But if you just have a bunch of miscellaneous subordinate goals and there's really no Hierarchy that gives them architecture and ties them together. um, Those subordinate goals uh, can be really hard to stick with. Um, And what's really important about these superordinate goals, like I said, they they give us a foundation that really promotes success. So they're they're identity based, which means that they they enhance the meaning of all the goals that come lower on the hierarchy mm-hmm. and, and, and they really heighten the importance of what we're trying to do, right? So when we start to set these subordinate goals, they seem a little bit arbitrary because they're so specific. But when you have a good superordinate goal in mind and your motivation starts to wane a little bit, because they're identity-based, it really makes you wrestle with the question, is the type of person I'm trying to become the type of person who falls short of these little things that previously seemed really uh, miscellaneous and kind of scattered and not not really cohesively feeding into a bigger picture. Yeah, you know, so yeah. it really helps to strengthen our guidance and enhance the meaning of some of these goals, uh, and it increases uh, our ability to be flexible. You know, we might find that some of our subordinate goals aren't really serving the purpose we hope that they would. Mm-hmm. And we can make adjustments to those subordinate goals while maintaining the same general direction. And so that doesn't feel like a failure. It doesn't feel like, ah, I've abandoned my goals because I'm not good enough to do them. Mm-hmm. It's, okay, this subordinate goal within this entire mix of this hierarchy simply wasn't the most effective way to feed into the higher levels of the hierarchy. Yeah. So it's a planned adjustment. Uh, It's being adaptable and flexible. It's not simply succeeding or failing. Uh, so having this hierarchy is really helpful for those purposes. And like I said, I I'm linking the, the full text by Hockley and colleagues, uh, it goes into a lot of detail about the multifaceted benefits of superordinate goals, which I think are way too frequently discounted and undervalued. Mm-hmm. Uh, but another nice thing about having this hierarchy is it introduces two concepts. One is equifinality and the other is multifinality. So equifinality means can, that... Can,
1: can I just add something real quick? Yes. So I think that I think that one of the benefits of um, what what Hockley is referring to as superordinate goals is I think that um, it, it seems like they largely relate to concepts or ideas like self-concept, mm-hmm. and I think that if you can leverage that, it helps you k- kind of like. Um, leverage cognitive dissonance to your own benefit Mm -hmm. because like for example if you're um like if if a fundamental part of your self-concept is like you know like i'm a lifter i'm someone who takes training seriously blah 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 um one of the one of like the bits of internal conflict that you can find people online working out publicly is like you know like i'm the type of person who works out and like There's this thing coming up, which, you know, most of the world would view as like an unalloyed good, but it is causing me a sense of stress. For example, um, you know, I'm getting married and I'm going on my honeymoon for two weeks and like the place we're going, like the hotel doesn't have a gym. So like, what am I going to do? Um, and like, I'm not saying that that's a particularly good thing, but, uh, I think kind of the idea underpinning that is like, you know, this is such a core piece of who I am that being unable to do it, um, kind of causes some degree of cognitive dissonance. Like how can I be the type of person who works out as like a core part of who I am and then like not be able to do it for a semi extended period of time. And then you you can see, Um, like lifters dealing with a significant injury, kind of like processing the same thing. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know that that's always necessarily a good thing, but like it's a wellspring of internal motivation to keep doing this thing because like not doing it feels like a pretty big, a pretty big conflict with who you are, like your entire concept of yourself. Um, and so you know if you if you view yourself as a a not exercising type individual and you want to start exercising then you know if if there's a week or two where you don't exercise at all there's going to be kind of less mental friction there because it's not really conflicting with how you view yourself but in in pursuit of a superordinate goal if you can like over time change your self concept then it becomes both easier to do the things that you're wanting to do, and if anything, over time, it can become challenging to not do those things, yeah. like not engage in those behaviors that that you're trying to uh, newly implement, if, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely, yeah. One of the kind of main points or one of the, the really big points that they highlight when they talk about the value of superordinate goals is uh, what they call strengthened guidance. And, and with the way they put it, is um, that uh, focusing on superordinate goals not only increases performance, uh, but can also guide the choice of identity congruent actions. So it's exactly what you're talking about there with it it becomes so identity based and you want to have that congruency. Is it congruence? Congruency? Whatever. uh, Between what I'm doing and this uh, idea of self that I have in mind uh, Mm -hmm. related to my goal. And another thing that uh, is really valuable here, something that they also bring up is the topic of sustain, uh, sustained discrepancy. So over the long term, uh, having this whole hierarchy of goals, including a superordinate goal, um, it reinforces this sustained di- discrepancy between the status quo, where you're at now, what you're doing now, and the desired endpoint. So it's always there to have this kind of motivating driving force of this is the aspiration in, a, in the big picture and there is still a bit of a discrepancy between where I am now and where I want to be and that can be something that fuels motivation and enthusiasm without feeling like failure. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's this kind of aspirational look at a big picture goal. So absolutely, you are right on the money and where, where I left off here was the, the two last points of having this hierarchy, you know, the, the really big upsides here, equifinality and multifinality. So, equifinality means that a goal can be supported by multiple distinct goals that are lower on the hierarchy. Um, and so, for example, uh, being healthier, you can support that through eating better, sleeping better, uh, better stress management. Things like that. So, when your motivation to exercise is low, you can still stay on track with your superordinate goal because you can shift a little bit more focus to your dietary habits or, or some other aspect feeding into that higher goal. So, it provides an element of flexibility that can help reinforce your long term goal attainment. You know, you don't always have to be perfect with every aspect. When you have equifinality, there are multiple ways for you to do something today that feeds into the higher levels of what you're trying to pursue. Mm-hmm. Now, multifinality is a little bit different. It means that a single goal can support multiple different goals that are higher on the hierarchy. Uh, so a, an example that I came up with for this is like going for an outdoor jog. Um, you know, so of course that would support perhaps an intermediate goal of getting more physical activity, but it could also favorably impact your sleep habits, which we we talked about earlier. Um, and maybe if you're doing this jog in the morning, it forces you to have a consistent wake up time. So it's, it's, you know, reinforcing good wake and sleep patterns while also giving you better sleep quality through exercise. So that outdoor jog is not just more physical activity. It relates to, you know, getting better sleep, which feeds into health. It can also relate to, we've talked about this on the show before, but going from really sedentary to fairly active can recouple your satiety signals so that your appetite is better regulated relative to your energy expenditure. Mm -hmm. So that jog is actually influencing several intermediate goals that still feed into the superordinate goal. So you can see that there's tremendous value in this flexibility because even if you're at a point where you say, Honestly, dude, I don't really give a shit about cardiovascular fitness today. I'm kind of over it. You might feel tempted to skip that run that is kind of built into your your subordinate goal. But then you think, well, I do sleep so much better when I run. And it does help curb my appetite a little bit. So for those other reasons, you're Mm -hmm. still able to kind of find that motivation to feed into that behavior, yeah. So there's a lot of benefit from having a rich, robust hierarchy of goals that capitalize on equifinality and multifinality, and ultimately feed into something that is identity based.
1: Yeah, and, and I think, um, like, just just kind of stewing on this a little bit while you were talking, something that occurs to me as well is that I think having, I think setting a superordinate goal necessarily requires a bit of additional reflection. Mm -hmm. Um, because like it's ultimately about like, like what do I want to be? Who am I trying to become? Uh, and, and I think that that often, um, kind of like helps you drill down into kind of what, whatever the, the proximate goal you had for yourself is it, it makes you ask yourself like, why do I want this? Um, And I think that's relevant, uh, in the context of a lot of people setting new year's resolutions around weight loss, because, you know, if, if you stop and think about it for a second, uh, if, if you were to ask someone like, why do you want to lose weight? Generally, it's not for its own sake, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, generally, I mean, generally people either want to lose weight to get healthier or to, uh, like be more conventionally attractive. Like the, I, I think those are <laughs> like 90% of the reasons that people want to lose weight. Like generally people aren't just trying to be skinny for its own sake with no other
0: yeah kind we, of we, idea we get, behind it. Yeah, we get a lot of applications for coaching that say, yeah, I, I'd like to lose this many pounds because, you know, I'm on the dating market and yeah. I feel more confident Yeah, when yeah. I'm, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so like, you know, those are the things people are trying to get out of it. So they're setting the goal of like, I want to lose weight. But then the question is like, why like what is that going to get you um and like u- ultimately what type of person is that leading you towards being and so you know if if the underlying motivation is i want to be healthier then like you were saying that can that can be the source of a lot of other super or uh, subordinate goals mm-hmm. where you know like maybe losing weight is going to be good for you maybe eating better is going to be good for you like there's there's a lot of ways to become healthier um And I mean, you know, a lot of people struggle with weight loss. And if there's six subordinate goals you set for yourself and maybe weight loss is still a challenge, but you make meaningful progress on four of the six, like ultimately you are getting closer, like you're making progress towards the actual thing you care about that was motivating the weight loss in the first place. Um, And same thing, like, you know, if you're mostly trying to lose weight to like feel more confident, um, be more uh conventionally attractive with however you define that term like you know there's a lot of other ways you can go about doing that like you can improve your uh personal grooming you can work on trying to become funnier uh you can pick up more hobbies that people will find interesting like you know there's there there's a lot of roads that lead to rome and i think by trying to set a superordinate goal it kind of forces you to interrogate Kind of the initial subordinate goal you were trying to set for yourself, um, to to basically find for yourself more paths to success.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm glad that you brought up uh, weight loss as the example because um, it, it, it's the perfect example of when failing to have a rich goal hierarchy sets you up for failure. Um, because you know, you think of weight loss generally speaking as you were alluding to that's somewhere in the intermediate to subordinate range of goals um and, and usually intermediate uh you know usually there are tasks you do to facilitate yeah, yeah, weight yeah. loss which feeds into a superordinate goal ideally mm-hmm. but if all you do is focus on an intermediate goal i mean that's clearly not a good strategy right because you're not setting up enough uh you're not setting up enough specific subordinate goals to actually feed into it and you don't have the actual anchor of the superordinate goal to reinforce why we're even doing this in the first place Mm -hmm. so this it's just this singular intermediate goal floating out here with no foundation with no support and yeah it's not a good strategy and what you're getting at there uh this idea of the superordinate goal challenging us to wrestle with this and figure out what are the paths to the goal that actually matters to me Mm -hmm. that hits on a topic uh, that i actually had later in the outline which is the topic of mental contrasting and so with mental contrasting what you do is you envision a desired future uh, which generally entails you successfully achieving your goal and then you contrast it with the present reality and when you do that, it encourages you to wrestle with that contrast, the differences between this idealized future and the present reality, and that can spur action and you know introduce a higher level of enthusiasm. But it also causes you to, uh, and, and there is research indicating that it increases expectations of success, which feeds into self-efficacy, which is very very positive. But it causes you to identify specific obstacles. Mm -hmm. And that really is the key to setting up one of these these hierarchies is you need to identify those specific obstacles and your intermediate and subordinate goals should be targeting those specific obstacles. So absolutely having a superordinate goal pushes up, kind of nudges us toward uh, this mental contrasting, which helps us fill in this hierarchy. But without question, the, the process of goal setting needs to be extremely reflective and extremely well thought out and so like you said it, it can't be as simple as just weight loss it's got to be weight loss for what and why and also how mm-hmm. and when you put it in that framework uh good luck writing a smart goal that that covers all <laughs> that right it, it's yeah. just it's it's not an intuitive way to make it work uh The last thing I want to mention here, though, if I could uh, take a slight detour on the road to enlightenment, uh, (laughs) revive the segment. One of the concepts that comes up a lot in, uh, you know, Buddhist teachings is recognizing that you do have the resources that you require to, to become what you wish to become. So when we talk about this future self and current self, this idealized self and the present self, I don't want people to internalize that as the current me isn't good enough. You know, so that's something that is intuitively a road we can go down. And I don't think that that's a particularly constructive road uh, for self-efficacy and long-term success. So when we talk about these future self, current self things and the difference between them, I just want to reinforce it. It doesn't mean that you're currently not good enough. What it means is that you have the capability within you. It just needs to be accessed. It just needs to be tapped into. And that's what goal setting is about. So if you're setting these things up and you're continuously kind of psychologically reinforcing the idea that current you is not good enough, first of all, that sucks. That's bad vibes. But second of all, that's actually deleterious to the process of successful goal attainment. Mm -hmm. So I'm being a little careless with the, the verbiage and the terminology there and kind of reflecting some of these individual papers. But it's really important to get out of that trap of reinforcing the idea that you are not good enough and not capable. You Mm -hmm. know, it's there. It's just about doing proper goal design so that you can set yourself up for success Mm -hmm. so you can really access that potential. Now, I do want to briefly talk about, I've been going on for a while here. I do want to briefly talk about a few other miscellaneous characteristics of effective goals. So I think by far the most important thing to, to really sink your teeth into is the idea of a robust goal hierarchy with equifinality and multifinality. But there are a number of subtopics that are really important. So the first one I want to talk about is approach versus avoidance. Uh, Very, very important. Uh, And it's a fairly simple distinction. Um, If you wish to uh, improve the quality of your diet, right, if that's your goal, um, an approach goal, would be something like eating more vegetables or eating more protein, right? Uh, in contrast, an avoidance goal that is more diet-oriented diet might be uh, eating dessert less frequency or consuming fewer sugar-sweetened beverages, right? So an approach-focused goal is what are the things I'm seeking out here? What are the things that I'm adding into my life and, and, and approaching avoidance is what is the stuff I'm going to cut out of my life, the things that I like, but are, I'm going to force myself to avoid. Mm-hmm. And there's absolutely evidence indicating that approach-focused goals, they inherently frame these changes in a more positive light, which is a good thing. And they have been associated with more positive emotions, more positive thoughts, better self-evaluations, and greater overall psychological well-being.
1: But I'm, I mean, that makes sense because with uh, with avoidance oriented goals, you know, you're you're trying to not do something you're currently doing and generally you're only currently doing something either because you like to do it or it's just like the convenient thing to do.
0: It's an ingrained habit. Yeah. Or something yeah. Like that. So
1: um, like a approach oriented goal could be easy, could be hard. You never know. But like an avoidance oriented goal, I think is almost necessarily an uphill battle Yep, because you're, you're either telling yourself, I'm not going to do this thing that I like to do, or um, like I'm, I'm going to try to give up doing this thing that even if I don't particularly like it, it's very habitual, it's very ingrained. So like, yeah, you're, you're necessarily attempting to fight against the current. Whereas with, with approach oriented goals, you know, especially if you're the type of person who likes novelty, likes, likes doing new things, it it may just be easy and fun to do, or, yeah. you know, it, it could be challenging, but there's, you know, there's a spectrum there. Whereas I feel like the vast majority of approach oriented goals are going to be challenging and fairly unpleasant.
0: Yeah. And the psychological ramifications I think are also really intuitive because you've identified this avoidance goal. It's this thing about you. And the way you behave that you think is bad, right? And so it's kind of automatically reinforcing that idea of like, dude, I suck, but maybe someday I won't suck, Mm -hmm. you know, like, which is not a good starting point for self-efficacy and positive psychological outcomes. Um, and if, if that isn't enough to convince you just based on the subjective experience that, you know, approach oriented goals are more enjoyable and more positive, Uh, the study by Oscarson that I keep mentioning from 2020, uh, in people who mostly had fitness oriented new year's resolutions, they were significantly more successful if they took an approach oriented goal setting strategy rather than an avoidance oriented strategy. So there is empirical evidence, uh, that it is simply a more successful route to take aside from just being a much better vibe to follow now. Uh, Another topic I want to talk about, another kind of dichotomy here, Uh, flexible restraint versus rigid restraint. This is something that comes up a lot in
1: nutrition. Um, And And, and I think it's very poorly understood. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the reason I say that is because until maybe like three years ago, I thought I understood this concept and I fucking didn't. Uh, Eric Helms had a good, I think, video series for Mass uh, talking about approach or uh, talking about uh, rigid versus flexible restraint in the in the context of dieting, like flexible dieting. And like, I thought I knew what that was. And then I watched his videos. I was like, oh, I was wrong. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. So just to to provide some context here. So someone who applies rigid restraint to their diet uh, is going to tend to set a lot of inflexible rules and boundaries. Uh, they're often going to evaluate their adherence in dichotomous terms. So they had a good day of dieting or an unsuccessful day, right? Pass or fail, good or bad. There's no gray area where it's like, yeah, I was only 60 calories over. That's fine. Uh, so rigid dichotomies, rigid rules and boundaries. Often they'll restrict themselves to a really small list of diet approved foods, or they'll aim to hit their daily macro targets or their calorie targets with a completely impractical level of precision. Uh, and they will aim for perfection at the expense of flexibility, adaptability, and practicality. And when they do fall short of perfection, it's internalized as a categorical failure. Now, in contrast, someone with flexible, uh, restraint with their diet is going to be the opposite of that. It's, it's more pragmatic. It's more flexible. Uh, there are goals. Sometimes there will be small deviations. Sometimes there will be large deviations from those different targets. Uh, but someone who is close to hitting their target can say, hey, pretty close. Not bad, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, so what you're getting at is the fact that a, there are a lot of people who do flexible dieting.
1: Yeah, if, I, I think if you ask most people, like most fitness people on Instagram, what is flexible dieting? They'll probably be like, ah, you can eat whatever foods you want as long as you're within five grams of every macro, right? And like, yeah, yeah. Which, I, I which would, is still pretty rigid.
0: I would love to see some survey research figuring out of the percentage of what percentage of people doing flexible dieting are actually exercising rigid restraint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and coming from the bodybuilding and physique world, my gut reaction is ninety nine. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, I understand it's a skewed perspective, yeah, right? Yeah. But, but there are so many people who are like, dude, flexible dieting is great. It gave me a new lease on life. And it's like, yeah, but your goal for fat intake is 65. And if you have 67, it, you, you view that as like a categorical failure. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's flexible.
1: Well, I mean, I, I guess it's a, uh... I guess it's a matter of degree right yeah like you know you, you can't just strictly categorize things as flexible or rigid like yeah a, a lot of people who are doing really a quite rigid form of what they call flexible dieting it very well could be a dietary approach that is that get that does give them far more uh flexibility than whatever they were doing previously yeah but in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's still fairly rigid,
0: right? Yeah, Yeah. it's definitely a spectrum and you can go from extremely rigid to pretty rigid. And that could be a huge impact on quality of life Mm -hmm. and and the practicality and the pragmatic value of what you're doing nutritionally. That's definitely a good point. Um, but now that we've kind of set up these terms, you will be very unsurprised to learn that that research has shown that uh rigid restraint with dieting tends to be associated with disordered eating symptoms, uh body image concerns, poorer well-being, and just a wide range of negative psychological outcomes. Um, and it's not just, it hasn't only been studied in the context of nutrition. I actually came across a study looking at uh smoking cessation. And what they found was that trying to implement flexible restraint to just lower the amount of smoking, like the number of cigarettes that people were smoking in different experimental contexts, the flexible restraint uh, approaches were actually more successful than the rigid restraint approaches when it came to just getting people to smoke less uh, within different contexts. So uh, definitely, whenever possible, flexible restraint is going to be really advisable. Uh, now there are going to be some, I I should acknowledge, there are going to be some habits and behaviors that are really, really deleterious that you might say, honestly, doing this one time a week is truly one too many. Like, like there are going to be contexts where that is the case. Um, but for most contexts, you, you can find a way to work flexible restraint rather than rigid. Uh, another one here, uh, process versus outcome. Uh, there was, uh, a paper by Kaftan and Froond. No way I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that's fine. <laughs> um, but the, the paper was called The Way is the Goal, the role of Gofoc- goal focus for successful goal pursuit and subjective well-being. Um, the thing I liked about this is they actually, the title is kind of a play on words, The Way is the Goal. Um, it's extremely similar to a literary uh, device that I've seen used by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's Mm -hmm. a a really well-known Buddhist teacher. Um, And he always talks about like, uh, there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way, which is focus on the process of being happy now. Don't focus on what's going to lead you to happy outcomes, some arbitrary future date. Yeah. Uh, And that's exactly what they were getting at.
1: I, I think that's also God. any, any like history of philosophy. People listening are about to be very mad but that was something that either Plato or Aristotle said as well. I think it was Plato. It seems like more of a, a Plato thing. Yeah. Um, that, like, ultimately, like, like, happiness is the chief good. It's mm-hmm. the chief goal. Because, like, ultimately, if you examine any goal um, and, and ask, like, well, why do you want that? And then they give an answer. Well, why do you want that? Then they give an answer. Uh, like, ultimately, it's just, like, because I I think if I do this, I'll be happier. And, and then you ask, like, well, why do you want to be happier? And like there's not a good answer to that. Like, people just fucking like being happy. Like that's yeah. that's the whole point of it. So it's kind of like the only goal that is not feeding into something else. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that sounds like a, a reasonably similar concept.
0: Yeah. Uh so in this paper, basically it's a very simple conclusion. They Give you, I don't know, probably three or four thousand words worth of it, but the the general idea is when you when you look at uh, goal pursuit, and and there's you know these two contrasting uh, focal points: focusing on the process versus focusing on the outcome. uh, The empirical research supports the idea that focusing more on the process, um, it's more adaptive. Uh, It it sets up a higher level of success. It does feed into greater rates of goal attainment, you know, more successful goal attainment. And it also leads to a, a more positive subjective experience. When people focus more on the process than the goal, they enjoy the goal striving process to a higher degree. And they also, as a nice added bonus, happen to to be a little bit more successful in actually achieving some of those endpoints that are important to them. Mm -hmm. So whenever possible, uh, it certainly seems that adopting a more process focused approach to goal uh, achievement or goal pursuit uh, seems to be the better option. So focusing on what can I do today? What can I do now? What are the aspects of this process that I can engage with day to day? Um, Because, you know, something that comes up is the fact that, We typically spend, well, we almost always spend way longer pursuing our goals than experiencing the attainment of our goals. That was a a thing that they highlighted in the paper. It reminds me of something that my football coach used to say, all great wisdom comes from a high school football coach. We can agree there's, you know, Plato and Aristotle and your high school defensive ends coach. Yeah. But uh, anyway, he said you know people were being dragging our feet around practice oh this sucks and he was like listen you better start liking practice cuz we have 10 games and we have like a thousand practices so mm-hmm. like this sport is way more practicing than it is playing the games yeah and it's the same kind of idea with with goal pursuit it's like you better get to liking the active pursuit of your goal cuz you're going to spend a lot more time on that than the one day where you finally check off the box and say yes goal has been attained. Yes. Uh, so it's a similar concept of focusing on the process more so than the outcome. And ironically, when you do that, you're probably more likely to actually reach that outcome eventually. Yeah. Now the next one, mastery versus performance, um, with a mastery goal, you could also call it a learning goal. What you're trying to do is, uh, learn new skills, uh, attain new abilities. You're trying to master a new thing. Um, and so the opposite of that would be a performance goal, which is purely just, you know, focused on, you know, did I perform up to expectation based on the goal that I set? So performance goals, uh, just kind of, you know, pass fail. Did I do a good job on this? Uh, the downside there is that if you fail to achieve, uh, a performance goal, you're probably going to interpret that as a really negative thing, a failure, uh, an insufficient ability to get the job done. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we don't internalize that well, and that does not feed into high levels of self-efficacy or confidence or enthusiasm about continued goal pursuit. Now, when we have a goal that focuses on mastery, it's in many cases, there's going to be something like learning a new skill, Mm -hmm. And so when we run into challenges there and we run into things where we really aren't doing a, a good job with it at all, think of the last time you tried to learn something truly new. You don't internalize that as like, oh, man, I'm just a worthless person. What you say is, damn, this is hard. I knew it was going to be hard. Maybe I need to reassess the way I'm approaching it. Maybe I need to try some new strategies to master this task. Mm-hmm. When you can find a way to make your goals focused on mastery rather than performance, it's not always going to be feasible to do that depending on your goal. But it builds in a level of flexibility. It it builds in uh, problem solving, active engagement with getting through the challenges because the ch- the challenges are expected to be part of it, right? Yeah. So it, it can be a really positive thing that increases your self-efficacy. When you're pushing yourself to do new things, you will run into friction and challenges, but you can push through those and be adaptable and be creative. And it's even more fulfilling in many cases when you're able to learn a new thing and look back and say, May- "I'm maybe I'm only 40% of my way to the real endpoint that I had in mind mm-hmm. with, with some of my higher level goals. But look at this progress, dude. Like I used to be so bad at cooking and look at how many new dishes I can cook. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, a good, a good, um, example with mastery, like a performance goal might be lose 10 pounds. And then you, you wake up one day and weight is about two pounds higher than you expect. And you're like, dude, this sucks. I failed. Right. But with mastery, you could say, I want to get better at cooking. I want to learn how to track my nutrition more effectively. Uh, I want to learn a new type of physical activity so that I can promote energy expenditure, you know, like, uh, this upcoming year, I'm, I'm going to get into paddle boarding, which Mm -hmm. I'm really excited about. That is going to increase my cardio respiratory fitness, but it's also just going to be a fun new thing to, to work on, you know? So trying to incorporate mastery is a really positive thing.
1: So, So something that occurs to me about that as well is, um, so a lot of, a lot of outcomes you want to achieve. I think a lot of the skills necessary to bring about those outcomes like oftentimes there's a process where you have to accumulate enough skill for like you know underlying components that are going to contribute to the outcome before you actually start noticing meaningful impacts on the outcome so uh like the the paddle boarding example you gave i think is is great like that will probably improve your cardio fitness once you get pretty good at paddle boarding but like when you suck at paddle boarding, you probably aren't going to be able to put enough exertion into it to stress your cardiorespiratory system enough for there to be any meaningful aerobic adaptation. So like yeah. you need to ma- like you need to a- attain a high enough mastery of paddle boarding before it can actually contribute to those other outcomes you're interested in. What, what I was thinking about while you, while you were talking is um, so my, my love of, playing basketball is, is not a secret on this podcast. Um, so I hit, I hit my growth spurt extremely young. Like I, I essentially haven't grown since sixth grade. And so between eighth and ninth grade, I had to transition from center to uh, shooting guard point guard. Cause you know, I used to be the tallest guy and then I very much was not anymore. Um, yeah, so that,
0: that drop step on the block was not quite as valuable as it used to be. Correct. Yeah. So
1: like I was a poor dribbler and I was a poor shooter. And, you know, uh, I, you know, when you go from being very bad at dribbling to like kind of bad at dribbling, guess what? You're still a shitty point guard. Like that, <laughs> yeah. that does not improve your point guard play <laughs> to any meaningful degree. Yeah. But like, you know, I could tell that I was getting better. And then eventually I reached the point that I did have a good enough handle to be effective on the court. And like same thing with shooting, like if if you go from being a very bad mid-range to outside shooter to a sort of bad mid-range to outside shooter, that adds virtually no value to your team because more often than not, unless a possession completely breaks down, there's probably a better shot on the court and you shouldn't be taking you know one of those shots you're not good at. But then you eventually do get good enough that taking that shot is valuable for your team. So, yeah. you know, there, there's a process where, like, oftentimes you do have to accumulate enough underlying skill for it to actually be useful for the outcome that you're interested in. So yeah. if, if you go into it just focused on the outcome, there's there's going to be a very long period of frustration where it seems like you're not making any progress towards your goal because your goal is the outcome. Yeah. But if if you're more focused on the process and accumulating that skill, even before you start seeing like a noticeable change in sort of the outcome you're interested in, you are uh, staying engaged in the process because you're, you're seeing improvements that you care about along the way.
0: Yeah. and, And there's considerable overlap when we talk about these different aspects of a good goal. Um, you know, so like you said, mastery does kind of force you to be a little bit more process oriented rather than outcome oriented, especially in the short, in the short term. Um, And what's really nice about these mastery goals is you probably want to complement them with things that you're already quite good at. When you have, when you look at your entire list of subordinate goals, Uh, you want to have some things that are still moving the needle related to the outcome. Cause like you said, there could be some lag time there, but what's really nice is with these mastery goals, you stay engaged on the process, on the process almost by definition, you know, they kind of force you to, and then you achieve them, you know, and what's really nice is when you master a new skill, it has a huge boost for your self-efficacy related to your goal. Uh, You are now seeing yourself as a person who achieves things Mm -hmm. uh, and you have a new relevant skill. So you're more equipped than ever to make big strides towards some of the higher level goals. So there are a lot of benefits of incorporating some mastery focused goals for sure. Now, one thing you've mentioned previously is the idea of goal difficulty. And I'm not going to get Super into the details here, but I am going to link a study by Sharif and Shu that looks into a concept that I think is really valuable. What they were looking at is you know, there's plenty of research before their work about how hard should a goal be. And it's fairly straightforward. If it's too easy, it's boring. If it's too hard, it's demotivating and discouraging. You need to find a sweet spot. It has to be something that's hard enough to kind of get your juices flowing, uh, but easy enough that you can make some degree of satisfactory progress to, uh, to continue fueling the effort. What they uh, looked into, what, what they uh, really came away with from their study was this idea of something called slack with a cost. Uh, another phrase they use is the emergency reserve. And what they did is they, they had this task. Uh, the details aren't critically important, but basically there is an easy goal. There was a hard goal. The easy goal was, hey, do this thing five days a week. The hard goal was, hey, do this thing seven days a week. There was another goal that was like, hey, do it five days a week. That's your goal. And that's what you get rewarded for in terms of success and failure. But go ahead and try to do it all seven days anyway. So there wasn't really a lot of additional benefit from those extra two days. It was just like, you're on the hook for five days a week, but just do the seven anyway. Now, the final group had slack with a cost. What that meant was their official goal was do it all seven days, the hard goal, but we will excuse two of them if necessary. So like, we will give you some wiggle room here that is built into your understanding of the expectations. There was a little cost associated with it. If they used those reserve days, it reduced their financial compensation, but not to a large degree. The real payout was, did you achieve your goal, which was- essentially for them five, but it was framed differently. It was seven with two kind of gimmies, like two mulligans. What they found was that that slack with a cost was uh, not not only the most enjoyable, uh, like they asked like, hey, if you had to do this again, which of these would you prefer? They're like, yeah, give me the slack with a cost one. But also it led to the highest rates of success in terms of actually achieving the goal. So there's some value to having this emergency reserve And one of the, uh, examples I saw was, for example, they related it to nutrition and they said like, well, let's say your goal for this week is to have a daily caloric intake of 1900 calories, but you have this emergency reserve. You've got these like 800 calories that can be allocated anywhere you want throughout the week and you don't have to use them. So the goal is you've got 1900 calories a day plus this emergency reserve of like 800 extra calories if you want them. And so it's slack because it's like, okay, I can like break the glass in case of emergency and use these 800 calories, have a couple days that are an extra 400, whatever you want to do. But what it does is, um, you know, there's this slack, but like I said, there's a cost, right? So if you are repeatedly exhausting the entirety of that calorie reserve, then it will to a small degree mean, okay, it might extend my diet a little bit longer because I am on average eating a little bit more throughout the week. So that is the idea of slack with a cost. And there is some empirical evidence to suggest that it's a really nice way to combine hard goals that are a bit of a stretch that incorporates some flexibility some adaptability and when you lean on that flexibility it is not internalized as failure you don't see it as a big hit to your success or your self-efficacy and it kind of relates to something we talked about uh we did a show about uh diet breaks and refeeds and we talked about a study where there were planned hedonic deviations that really took the same form they basically had one day a week where it's like hey if you want to eat up to like this many calories just go for it. It's fine. Uh, and that does seem to be a really beneficial thing. And again, it's, it's not, um, it, it's not a matter of like rigid restraint where it's like on the diet for six days and off for the seventh. It's about building in flexibility to the day-to-day targets. Um, so when possible, slack with a cost is a really nice way to, you, you Sometimes you can be really nervous about setting a stretch goal that's really challenging because you're like, well, if I keep failing, that's going to be demotivating. Mm-hmm. Building in the slack with a cost allows us to set these goals that are challenging enough to be exciting, but feasible enough to be successful.
1: So I I know we've talked about this before. I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast or or just you and I, but um, I had never encountered this idea before. And as you started talking about this study, I was like, yeah, you know what that I this is the first thing that sounds very counterintuitive doesn't make sense to me. Um, Like the uh, especially the enjoyment part of it, because like comparing the two conditions of you need to do five days a week, but you can do seven if you want versus you need to do seven days a week. But like you can kind of use a bit of a get out of jail free card to get it down to five those those functionally seem very similar but to me if you would have just described those to me i would have thought that the you gotta do five but you can do seven if you want i would have thought that that would have been the more the more preferable approach um because the the goal itself seems more achievable like it's easier strictly speaking yeah but it it does give you the option to go above and beyond which you know maybe will make you feel good because like you are uh exceeding your expectations but both your expectations for yourself and in the case of the study the expectations that the researchers were placing on you so uh in a vacuum i would have thought that like oh that's that's definitely going to be the better approach but then as you were talking i realized more and more like oh shit the the slack with the cost that's literally how I'm approaching my diet right now where, um, like not currently, like I'm intentionally at maintenance, but when, when I'm intending to lose weight, I set my goal for, you know, the actual rate of weight loss I want. But then I do give myself that slack where, um, you know, since, since I roughly know what my maintenance calories are at any given point in time, you know, I, I tell myself like, at least four or five days a week i do want to be very very close to my actual calorie target for the day that i've set for myself that's in line with my goal but then if i need to go over that like you know if i'm like if i want to do a bit of stress eating or if i'm just very hungry for whatever reason as long as i stay below whatever that maintenance figure is like i'm still in good shape like i'm ultimately i'm still making progress towards my goal albeit at a somewhat reduced rate um which I think sounds identical to that slack with the cost idea. And uh, yeah, it, it's been working really well for me. And uh, so i um, glad to know that the research supports it. Yeah. But that, that, that is that is a novel idea to me.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I, I agree with you. When I first heard about it, I thought that other condition would be um, preferable. But I actually have been in that a scenario like that before, and I hated it. Uh, I was once in a, um, a position of employment where the expectations for me were not made clear. And it was like one of those things where at the end of the day, you're like, okay, boss, can I go home now? And they're like, well, do you feel like you've done enough? <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Well, I I think I met like the baseline expectations like, well, if if you think the baseline expectations are are good enough, then then you would then go intuitively if you think that's appropriate. You know, it's having unclear expectations about how hard you should push Mm -hmm. for a certain personality types personality type means you will push to an unreasonable degree or feel or feel guilty about not pushing.
1: I mean you know what that sounds like to me. What? It sounds like your boss is trying to do a bit of wage theft but <laughs> couldn't explicitly tell you because then he could have theoretically gotten in trouble.
0: Right. Yeah, but but it's the same kind of thing where it's like it can be frustrating because if you don't actually really indicate that achieving the goal is achieving the goal then a person will kind of walk away with a bit of an empty feeling of like, mm-hmm. well, I did that easy thing, but they did kind of challenge me to do a harder thing, and I just didn't do it, mm-hmm. and I don't feel good about that.
1: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, but um, yeah, so slack with a cost when possible is a really nice way to have a a challenging goal that gets you excited, but has a little bit of a buffer in there to keep you on track. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when it comes to setting specific goals, all those characteristics come into play. Having a rich hierarchy, a very robust hierarchy of interconnected uh, multi-level goals is a very valuable thing. When you go to set specific goals, you do want to engage with mental contrasting. You want to think, okay, there's this positive future where I've, I've achieved all these goals. There's the current situation where I have not yet. What are the main obstacles there? You identify the obstacles and you start setting specific goals that are in the intermediate and subordinate levels, but you want to use something uh, that they call implementation intentions. This is a very broad concept. Generally, it's defined as some kind of if-then plan that specifies when, where, and how you are going to implement a behavior leading to the attainment of a goal. So, uh, y- you know, you might say, if it's a weekday, then I will exercise for at least 45 minutes before work at the gym nearest my office, which is going to promote my intermediate goal of exercising more, you know. so, uh, And then that's going to feed into my superordinate goal of, uh, you know, improving my health. So what you're trying to do with implementation intention is, be very specific about your intentions of how you're going to implement these different behaviors leading into uh, goal attainment. Usually, like I said, it's treated like an if-then statement. That's kind of the classic form. But there have been some uh, offshoots that have taken different forms that are still similar uh, in terms of their premise. Um, One thing I should mention, though, is that there have been really good uh, meta-analyses, multiple meta-analyses that I've seen indicating that this combination of mental contrasting with implementation intentions, uh, does seem to be, uh, does lead to statistically significant improvements in goal attainment. So, uh, this is definitely an evidence-based combination of strategies. I mentioned some offshoots of implementation intentions that take a slightly different form. One is temptation bundling. And I've seen this, uh, I associate it with research by Katie Milkman. Uh, I don't know if, uh, if she coined the phrase, but that's where I first became aware of it. Um, And what you're doing is kind of pairing a goal-directed behavior that we should do, uh, but involves some kind of delayed gratification, something we know is good for us, but in the short term isn't particularly, Mm -hmm. we don't love it. Uh, You're pairing that with something that's very enjoyable, that has instant gratification, but isn't necessarily goal-directed. So one of the studies she did for an example was, you can listen to this really engaging audiobook that you really like, but you can only do it at the gym. So you go to the gym and do some type of, of, of aerobic exercise so that you will have the opportunity to engage with that thing that you really enjoy. And in some cases, it can be a, a twofold benefit because like if you think of, uh, let's say, a television show you really like, you might stay home and watch it at the expense of the gym right? So not only are you not going to the gym, but this thing is kind of pulling you actively away from the gym. You're replacing that habit or, or that activity by combining them. You are kind of cutting down on some of that less productive time that you've spent. And you've also given yourself another, a, a, an additional incentive to go in and do this goal directed behavior. So that's temptation bundling. Um, and I, I think that the, nomenclature is a bit counterintuitive because to me it sounds like
1: because it sounds like there's a lot of these things I want to do that are counterproductive to my goal and fuck it I'm going to do I'm going to bundle
0: all of it yeah yeah so it's about bundling a temptation with a goal directed behavior uh another thing uh, another kind of offshoot is the a topic called or a concept called habit stacking and so uh, it's first to my knowledge popularized by bj fogg and then double popularized by James Clear. Um, but it's, uh, basically instead of associating a particular action or behavior with a time and a place, you're associating it with a different habit that's already ingrained. Uh, so you might say, I'm going to stretch for five minutes before I brush my teeth, uh, or do a five minute kind of like relaxation exercise, uh, before I travel to the gym. So if I'm about to get in the car, get on a bus and go to the gym before I do that, Five minute, you know, relaxation strategy, something like that. So you do
1: it in the car on the way to the gym. Just close your eyes, (laughs) yeah. Seven seconds in, hold for seven, exhale for seven. It's great.
0: Exactly. So
1: And the thing is, like, if you're even if you're at highway speeds, you don't cover that much distance (laughs) when you close your eyes for 21 seconds. Like it's it's actually like kind of crazy how little you need to look at the road. Yeah, that's an
0: interesting perspective. Um (laughs) but The benefit here of doing this type of habit stacking in contrast to more traditional um, implementation intention is you are kind of piggybacking on a habit that's already ingrained. Like you're going to brush your teeth before bed. So it's a good opportunity. I'm going to brush my teeth before bed. (laughs) It's a good opportunity to say, well, that is going to happen. That habit's already ingrained. All I need to do is tack one little extra wrinkle onto that and now we've we've got a a kind of a double habit that's forming. Uh, So what we want to do there, like I said, uh, is identify these key barriers and then start talking about specific subordinate goals. We want to be really explicit in that goal setting process about how we're going to make those subordinate goals happen using things like implementation intentions, temptation bundling, habit stacking. Uh, a similar set of strategies that uh, I won't go into too much detail about is action planning and coping planning. So action planning is a similar thing where you you put together a specific plan about where, when and how a goal is going to be implemented. And then coping plans are when stuff goes wrong, how am I going to cope with different challenges that might come up. So for example, a really nice thing I've been enjoying that's been great for my sleep and wake cycles has been enjoying my coffee, you know, close to sunrise over by a lake that's nearby. Mm-hmm. So, action plan is great. Wake up, coffee's already programmed and ready to go. Get out the door, get to the lake, enjoy some sunlight, some fresh air. The coping strategy is what happens if it rains? Well, there's a different spot in this, that still is near the lake. That's a covered shelter. So if it rains, we've got a backup plan built in. So whatever your specific goal is, you want to identify very likely challenges and barriers and put together a, uh, a proactive plan so that when those things occur, you're ready to go and you can cope. Uh, so there are some additional tools on top of what we've discussed already, uh, that can be very, um, helpful in facilitating, and supporting goal attainment. These are not necessarily tied into the goal setting process itself, but something to keep in mind is stimulus control. So non-habit, goal-directed behaviors can be impacted by internal and external stimuli. And then habits, of course, are heavily, heavily impacted by stimuli. So uh, you you drive past a restaurant that you like and you're kind of hungry, you say, you know what, that's a stimulus. Instead of having the deal, uh, the dinner I was going to cook, I'm going to have that instead. Uh, smelling food cooking it, it can sometimes be a cue to eat, even though we're not necessarily hungry. Uh, eating in response to stress, the emotion is the stimulus that we're responding to, and it might cause us to deviate from our previous plan. Uh, something as simple as popcorn at a movie. You might say, when I'm at a movie, I eat popcorn, even though I don't really feel like eating popcorn. I'm here. I'm going to do it. So what's really important here is that these different stimuli, whether they're internal like an emotion or external like smelling food that's cooking, they can derail some of our planned behaviors. And so what you want to do is manipulate your environment to the best of your ability to remove things with a negative influence, to introduce things with a positive influence and to use tools when possible to facilitate and to reinforce positive habit formation. You want to basically make your goal-directed behaviors more resilient and more robust as it pertains to stimuli. And sometimes it's not about overcoming the stimuli, it's about removing the stimulus, right? Uh, So for example, I noticed last year when we talked about goal setting, one of the behaviors I had that, or the habits, I guess, that was really frustrating was just wasting time in bed. I'd wake up and grab my phone, which had my alarm on it, And start looking at emails and social media. I was like, dude, I've been in bed for way too long. Like, this is not okay. And so a really easy, you know, talking about using tools and devices that can help changing the environment. The phone is just gone now. I got like a $6 alarm clock and it changed my life. The alarm clock goes off. It's not interesting. It just tells me numbers, right? Right so the phone is completely out of the picture and my morning is so much more productive so these little things about modifying the environment are are re- can be really impactful even if it's a simple thing like picking up a you know a 6 or 7 dollar alarm clock that that is replacing your phone for your alarm uh, another thing that you want to think about is social support and feedback there's plenty of research indicating that Uh, Using tools that provide periodic reminders can be very helpful for staying engaged with a process related to a goal, uh, especially if that periodic feedback or the periodic reminders are individualized and frequent. The downside is if they're too frequent, there's empirical research to indicate, as you would expect people to say, dude, leave me alone. This is annoying. I saw one study where there was an app related to nutrition that kept giving this feedback. It was like, an average of like nine pings a week i think and the regression indicated that over time people were just like i'm not reading these anymore so you could see the time course people were just completely checking out um but anyway feedback reminders that are personalized individualized frequent can be really helpful for staying engaged with process oriented focus Uh, and then social support can be huge Having people that support your goal, that can help keep you accountable. Uh, one of the nice things, one of my goals currently relates to my morning routine. Uh, my girlfriend participates in that with me. And so we, we keep each other accountable. There are particular mornings where I might be likely to skip because I'm tired and, and vice versa. We keep each other accountable in that. And it's a really nice thing. So I think that covers the long list of things I wanted to mention about, uh, various strategies to support your goals, to set better goals, to increase your likelihood of attaining goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did, if you would allow me have a brief pitch.
1: I, I, I want to add yeah, either one or two things first. I have two things in mind, but after I say the first one, we'll see if I remember the second one. Sure. Anyway, yeah,
0: that's a habit I got out of. I, I used to on podcasts say, I have four thoughts related to that. Yeah. And then I would finish the third and be like, "Shit!"
1: Yeah, well, I can't think of it. I, I've already uh, pre-built myself an escape hatch. Yeah, so it's slack, but there is a cost because everyone's <laughs> going to think you're an idiot. Yeah, I mean they they do already. That's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, so one of the things, one of the things that I, I think has helped me out quite a bit that that I've noticed as a commonality, um, for when when I'm successful with goals versus when I fall short with goals is uh, and, and this, this relates to self-efficacy as well. I think is basically like how I frame failures and setbacks. Like if I'm relatively confident in my ability to accomplish a goal I've set for myself, then if I have a setback, like I don't care. Yeah. Um. And if anything, I, I view it as a positive thing because I can treat it as a learning experience. Like I hit this this roadblock, uh, maybe I didn't foresee it, but now I know that this is something that might get in my way and might make it more challenging to reach my goal. So now I can learn from that and develop new strategies either to not have as large of a setback if I hit this roadblock again or just to avoid that roadblock in the future. And um, so like that's, that's how I've always approached most things in my life. Uh, cause I, I think I'm just like naturally a, a relatively confident person. And if I set a goal for myself, I'm like, like I, I, I frame it in my head as like, well, if I wasn't going to reach this goal, I, I wouldn't have said it in the first place. So like it, it, it is an inevitability that it will come to pass. And it's just a question of how long it'll take. Um, But like I've always like I have always struggled quite a bit with weight loss and I kind of like mentally audited myself maybe like six months back and realized like, dude, I approach like uh, historically I approached weight loss uh, and and habits and behaviors around weight loss just like completely differently than I approach any other sort of goal I've ever had for myself Um, because like I think I did have like such a long history of struggling with it and such a long history of like failing to accomplish weight loss and failing to, to keep the weight off. Like once I would lose it, that I think I would go into attempts to lose weight with a completely different mindset where setbacks, I I would interpret them more as like actual failures instead of just learning opportunities. Um, And I I think this time around, I've been more successful because, like, I I did mentally audit that for myself. And I was like, look, theoretically, there's no reason I shouldn't be able to do this. Like, ultimately, it does just kind of come down to physics. Uh, And so I just need to figure out strategies that will allow me to be successful. And so I was, like, still vaguely pessimistic when I started out. And that's one of the reasons that I didn't talk about it uh, much at all until until I had like at least a couple months of success that felt like it would be sustainable. Uh, but I, I approached it completely differently where, where I was like, you know, regardless of how I feel about it right now, I'm going to attempt to approach this the same way I would approach anything else. Um, like I know I'm going to fall short. I know I'm going to have setbacks. But like a goal I set for myself is every single time I have one of those, I'm going to learn something from it and like build the skills necessary to be more successful moving forward. Um, and so, I mean that, that I think is vaguely related to a lot of the things we've talked about thus far, like, yeah. it, you know, mastery versus performance. Like, am I building the skills necessary to be successful? But it, it was more of just like a mental frame more than anything. Um, like do like, are you viewing setbacks more as a bad thing like categorically like i i didn't do what i wanted to do now it's going to take me longer to reach my goal or are you viewing it as a positive thing like ultimately you wish it didn't happen but it is an opportunity to to learn from it um and yeah like that that is something in the context of weight loss that i've always struggled with and i i think i'm getting a lot better about it and it's it's helped me out a lot
0: yeah and and from that description, you can see those those elements of like being more process oriented, focusing more on mastery, having uh, a flexible concept of, you know, instead of having rigid, you know, setback is bad, success mm-hmm. is good. It's a more flexible perspective uh, that, that has some gray areas there where it's like, okay, there's, um, you know, things are, are slowing down a little bit or we've had a little setback. That doesn't mean failure. It means it's time to adjust a little bit. You yeah. know, it's it's time to to dig for some kind of additional mm-hmm. strategy.
1: Yeah. So um, that that was that was the first thing I wanted to say. I do remember the second thing I wanted wow. to say. Hell yeah, success. Um, anyway, so I think kind of a, a broad theme running through a lot of this uh, is just that like good vibes approaches to goal setting tend to work better. Um, and like, so one of the things that, that I personally find pretty frustrating about just, just kind of like narratives in the broader fitness industry in general, is there, there are a lot of like negatively framed things. Like, you know, if, if you fail at a particular like fitness or weight loss related goal, like it, it's because you didn't want it bad enough. Like you, you didn't, um, you know, like you, it's, it's almost like infantilizing almost. It's like, look, if, if you're a fucking adult, you should be able to eat right and get to the gym. And like, if you can't, you're just a fucking baby. Right. And like, there, there's a lot of that. And I guess it makes people feel good to say it like, I, I think ultimately the the speaker is getting far more out of statements like that than the listener is. Yeah. Um, but like, ultimately, I think that's an absolutely dog shit approach to this type of stuff overall. Because, like, ultimately, like, if that's sort of the mental framework you're working with, there really aren't any good vibes if you accomplish what you were trying to, because it, you're kind of framing it as just like, well, it's a matter of responsibility. And like, if you do this, it's what you were supposed to do already. Like that's the responsible adult thing to do. And so like you, you don't get kudos for it. You don't get a little gold star for doing what you were supposed to do. And then like, if you fail or have a setback, it's kind of like infantilizing. Like you're, you're, you don't have restraint. You're being a fucking child. And so like ultimately like having high self-efficacy tends to be good in pretty much all aspects of life and certainly in pursuit of like fitness or body comp related goals. And that, that entire framing of, you know, how, how you approach goals and how you approach setbacks, like ultimately you're, you're building kind of a mental schema where if you do have a setback, uh, you're the way you're interpreting that is going to be very deleterious for self-efficacy. There's a lot of shame linked to it. Yeah, and like, I don't know. One, it's not fun. Like, it's probably not the most mentally healthy way to approach this stuff. And two, like, it is is just generally less effective. Um, And I think that... uh, I think that... You know, ov- obviously, things that work better or worse differ person to person, um, and and it's not hard to find examples of people who who have just taken like kind of the white knuckle approach to fitness, weight loss, whatever, and were quite successful with it. Um, but I I think that it's easy to overgeneralize those anecdotes, is like I. I mean, as you've been talking about this whole time, the the research tends to suggest that uh, alternate approaches, in addition to just being associated with better vibes, do tend to be more effective.
0: Right. Yeah, it's, um, I totally agree. I, I, I think that it is much more uh, constructive. It's much more positive. It's much more effective to take A more evidence-based approach to what seems to help people uh change health-related behaviors and and what seems to help people with goal attainment and uh yeah evidence-based is not a slogan when we want to solve a problem we should try to consult with relevant evidence if it's available and the evidence available does not indicate that producing shame (laughs) And embarrassment and low self-efficacy is correlated with really positive behavior change. Yeah. The research very conclusively shows the opposite to be true in most cases. Um, but yeah, so if, if I could make a brief pitch, uh, New Year's is coming up. And as you can tell, I've been really digging into this literature and enjoying it. Um, one of the things that made me very proud when I was doing that is our diet app macro factor, um, I think fits in really well with a lot of some of these goal reinforcing concepts. And so I did want to at least acknowledge that because I'm proud of it. It's, it's an app that was carefully and thoughtfully designed, and we want it to be a supportive tool that helps people, um, When I say we, I mean mostly Corey and Rebecca because they're the brains behind the operation. But um, I'm really proud of the way that it is compatible with the evidence on supporting proactive behavior change and goal attainment. So we talked a little bit about being approach oriented um, rather than avoidance oriented and just the nature of how macro factor functions. Uh, There are no overly restrictive food or macro restrictions. Um, it, it's not like you go to a list of foods and it says, Oh no, don't eat the bad ones. Eat the good ones. It's, it's not like that. It, it's about logging what you choose to include. It's not about fixating on what you exclude, right? So it's a very, it's very approach oriented in nature. And, and please feel free to chime in if I'm, if there's anything that I'm omitting here, uh, being process oriented. One of the things that we see with a lot of users is they mention that, they refer to the first week or two as feeding the algorithm. Uh, And it does really get people into the, you know, users get into this uh, kind of mental framework of I do my thing. I focus on the process. I feed good data to the algorithm. It's it reacts. And it's this kind of back and forth. It's extremely process oriented. And of course there is goal setting that involves endpoints. But what we really focus on with the goal setting is the rate of change. You know, what we really focus on is when when we do have deviations, not overcorrecting, but getting back on track, we focus on not getting to this weight at this date by any means possible, but getting into the process of getting on that trajectory. And if we get a little bit off the the trajectory, it doesn't force you back onto that timeline. Of course, you can make adjustments to get there, but the whole idea is that the gent I mean, the, the way the algorithm functions is inherently process oriented. And so is the user experience.
1: Yeah, the, the, the adjustments aren't punitive. It's not like you ate a cumulative a thousand calories more this week than you were supposed to. And therefore we're going to bump your calories down a thousand next week to make up for it. It's right. like, you know what? You didn't stick to your goals quite the way that you intended to. And, uh, Tomorrow's a new day, you know? Uh, Absolutely. Dust, dust yourself off and try again.
0: And we, we still use that information to inform what do we do, what do we need to do today to get on the desired rate mm-hmm. of weight gain or weight loss or maintenance. It's not about how do we clean up this mess from yesterday. Correct. That's not the focus. Another thing, uh, fle- reinforcing flexible restraint rather than rigid restraint. Uh, the way the app functions, there is no need, nor is there an ability, to distinguish between adherent or non-adherent. It is immaterial to the way that the algorithm functions. Uh, the algorithm adapts to what you did and does not need to bin that into great adherence or moderate adherence or poor adherence. It's simply not a factor. You have targets, you strive for them, you will have varying levels of success day-to-day, but there is no concept of non-adherence. There's no concept of day-to-day failure. Uh, and we also, as an extension of that made a lot of design choices, not to include numbers that become red. You know, if your goal was 70 grams of fat, the number doesn't turn red when you hit 71. It's not something that happens. We don't have a bunch of scary banners and negative alerts when you go over a target when cutting, or if you go under a target when you're bulking, right? It's, it's a very adherence neutral approach that doesn't just reflect the way the algorithm functions, but also the design elements. And what we're trying to do is facilitate positive reinforcement of flexible restraint. Uh, Mastery promotion, Um, you know, on the, uh, as you get deeper into using the app, um, you know, it's, in my opinion, a really rich user experience. There's a lot of analytics and functionality That the more you use it, the deeper you can dig into some of those aspects. And I have noticed that a lot of users seem to feel like they are learning to leverage the tool more effectively the more that they use it. There's kind of a mastery involved with digging deeper and deeper into the analytics and into the various features that are available. Um, It also, you know, in the course of using this type of app, of course, you're going to be building skills related to cooking, related to meal prep. Uh, putting together meals based on the different food ingredients you have prepped. Uh, So over time, you're learning the skills and learning to leverage the tool in a way that supports success and becomes more familiar over time. And then, of course, we even kind of on a meta level, reinforce this idea of mastery because we have this public roadmap. And so it's not just asking users to, you know, dig into the features that are available, but it also encourages a bit of reflection and says, what kind of tools would help you be even better at mastering this process? Mm-hmm. And I think it encourages users to take a step back and say, not just what is available to me, but what types of things are required for me to gain even more mastery and more uh, have more tools to utilize in this process? Mm-hmm. Uh, slack with a cost. There are all sorts of options available for variable day-to-day intake. Uh, you know, whether you're using a coached plan or a collaborative plan, you can have high days and low days in terms of caloric intake on on a collaborative plan. You can set all sorts of different variable intakes from day to day. You can have a planned hedonic deviation, you know, say on Saturday, I'm going to have a big influx of calories and adjust my other days accordingly. Um, you know, slack with the cost is absolutely built into the functionality, uh, of the, the app and it's, it's underlying algorithm. Habit reinforcement. Uh, we spent a lot of time. And by we, I mean, Corey and Rebecca making the food locker, the food logger extremely efficient. Uh, I've been blown away with what they've been able to accomplish in terms of making it a really seamless, efficient food logging experience. And that does facilitate, for example, habit stacking you know if you really feel like logging your food is a frictionless event you can easily stack when I'm preparing a meal I stack on logging the meal you know or at one point at the end of the day with whatever habit I'm stacking with I go and log my foods for the full day if you prefer that approach Uh, and again it's a seamless experience that makes habit stacking more feasible if it were an experience that was more cumbersome and had more friction it would be a lot harder to kind of just tack it on to an existing thing you were going to do. Um, And then, of course, we've got the smart history that reinforces habits related to food selection. So uh, the smart history considers not just, hey, what are things you ate the last 30 days, but what do you tend to eat and when do you tend to eat it? So when you open up the app at 10 a.m., the app knows not just what foods you generally like, but what foods you prefer at around 10 a.m., And so if you were thinking, you know what, I might do a little bit of a high calorie deviation, you open up your app and it says, hey, do you want to go with the oats and blueberries again? You say, yeah, yeah, I probably do. And it's not forcing you into that decision, but it it is kind of reinforcing the habits that you've already ingrained Mm -hmm. in previous days. And then, of course, we do have uh, a tile on the dashboard that talks all about your habits with tracking. It gives different analytics related to streaks you have going on um, and helps to reinforce regular self monitoring. So keeps you engaged with the process of regularly logging your weight and your nutrition data. And then finally there's social support and feedback. So we do have daily updated analytics that are personalized within the app. And that personalization is key studies looking at, uh, feedback. If it's not personalized, it just doesn't work as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, The daily stuff is what you opt into. You can look into the dashboard and see how things are changing day to day. But the nudge is weekly. The nudge to go ahead and do an official check-in with the application. Uh, And weekly, I think, is a nice sweet spot based on the evidence available that frequent enough to give you a nice little nudge, but not so frequent that you're like, dude, get this crap off the screen, right? Yeah. And then, of course, the biggest part of social support is that we do have the Facebook group and the subreddit. Ah, uh, really nice supportive communities where people can talk about their goals, how things are going, discuss strategies that are, that they're using, discuss uh, challenges that they're facing, uh, and it's it's proven to be a really nice, uh, really nice little environment. I agree. All right, uh, do you have anything that you'd like to cover in this episode before we wrap it up and play things out?
1: No, not really. Um, now. Fair
0: enough. That's fine.
1: I'm, uh, you know what this, we're, we're going to go on break soon, right?
0: We are. Yeah.
1: Okay. So this is, this is a tentative to play us out type, type of thing. Um, so I, I posted, I think I talked about this on the podcast. I know I posted about it on Instagram, a protein bread recipe where we're essentially you're just subbing out, uh, some of the flour with casein. Um, Currently I have some bread proofing, which is a completely different approach to a high protein bread that I think will be bready but still kind of custardy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, custardy but still kind of bready, I guess would be the better way to say that. Um, so instead of going with the casein, um, all of the liquid just comes from uh, full fat cottage cheese and eggs. So uh, currently what I'm looking at, uh, like what is currently proofing downstairs that I'm going to pop in the oven as soon as we uh, as soon as we finish recording, it was a thousand grams of bread flour, a little bit of yeast. I think it was six cups of small curd, full fat cottage cheese, and I believe it was four eggs. Um, the, The dough seems to be behaving really well. Uh, it looked
0: like regular gu- regular dough to me.
1: Yeah, it's it's got great gluten formation. It's it's a little sticky, but uh ultimately not not too challenging to work. Um and, and I think the the like milk proteins and the lactose from the uh from the cottage cheese combined with the eggs, I think it's going to make a very delicious, like custardy bread um that has very solid macros. So if that, if that works out, uh, I will have posted about that by the time this episode comes up. So, uh, check my Instagram. If you see some, uh, cool new bread related content, that means my experiment worked out. And if you don't, it didn't work out. Uh, so you will know, you will be able to find out immediately, uh, how that experiment went as soon as you get done listening to this episode.
0: But this is a mastery focused goal. So even if you do have some setbacks, that's OK. You'll just look for different strategies to improve. Correct. Excellent. Uh, so you you gave it away a little bit. We are going to be taking a little break from podcasting. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of fits the annual schedule. So during our break, uh, we'll be doing more writing, uh, more Product refinement and things like that. So, we'll be staying busy. Uh, But in the interim, when you're not hearing our voice every couple of weeks, uh, of course, you can find us in the mass research review. We'll be keeping that up every single month, obviously. You can find us at the site if we have any new written content, um, the Stronger by Science Facebook group and subreddit, and of course, the Macro Factor Facebook group and subreddit. Uh, A bunch of those things will be linked in the show notes. So, we will be available. Uh, but not recording new podcasts for a little bit here uh, at the beginning of the year. But we'll be back with a new season after the break. Uh, so if you happen to be celebrating any holidays uh, in the next couple of weeks, we hope you have happy holidays. We thank you for listening, and we will be back better than ever after the break.
1: New year, new me, baby. Yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.